Good evening, everybody. I'm coming at you with a uh, late stream tonight. My name is Christian Wagner, and I am the militant Thomist. So um, with videos like these, it is entirely possible that this is going to fall into the hands of those who usually are not my followers. You might send it to some Protestant friends, um, and that's completely fine, Orthodox friends, those who are curious about the doctrine of purgatory. Now, I usually don't like to do apologetics. So if you're a Protestant watching this, um, I, I do cover a lot of other issues than just railing on Protestants all the time. So that might be of interest to you. That's not my main um, area of, of reading and of writing and of doing videos. So there's that. And just a word to my Catholic followers. Um, I'd, I don't know how to put this exactly in a, in a very nice way, um, but don't use this video as a club to beat um, Protestants over the head with or Orthodox over the head with. This is not meant to be something for per se Protestants. This is really meant for you to equip yourselves in order for you to talk to Protestants. Um, this is this is meant to equip you, not necessarily to uh, send to them on its own. This should really be something to spark de spark discussion between you, because with the apologetic encounter, it is something which is immensely and deeply personal. It's not something which is going to be achieved over uh, an internet video. So I'm just going to exhort you guys to um, try to use this appropriately. That's not to say that it's a bad thing to send this to Protestant friends, but you shouldn't be just sending texts and sending videos back and forth. This should, uh, it should, you should have a um, back and forth dialogue, discussion, a uh, friend, a deep friendship. That is the foundation of the apologetic encounter between those of differing views is that's how you should view it. So um, that's just my brief exhortation to, to you guys to make sure you use my content, which is apologetic in nature appropriately. Um, you may not be especially learned um, on a lot of points and be able, don't feel like you can hold your own in a conversation. And that's fine. That's completely fine. I'm not denigrating that. We all, we all start with uh, with knowing nothing and have to build up from that. And in those situations, it's okay to just uh, send videos, but you're going to want to use that to form a uh, a dial an ongoing dialogue because that's how you're going to bring Protestants back into the fold of Holy Mother Church, not um, sending these clickbaity videos. And not that I'm a clickbaiter, but uh, you you know what I'm talking about. So let's get right to it. So I'm going to share my screen and the link below is, is uh, to this text right here. It's from St. Thomas's work, uh, Rationes Fide, uh, Reasons for the Faith, Reasons on the Faith. And it's a work which is primarily against Muslims, but it's also um, justifies certain doctrines in the in the eyes of the Orthodox. So it does cover the issue of purgatory because that's especially um, important in Protestant and Catholic 
um, apologetics and um, the discussion between the uh, sad schism which we have going on so uh oh shia alex we i just had a stream with him he's in the he's in the chat right now so thank you for being here i always appreciate it when um And then armed with reason says, Dan Christian, how many live streams are you going to make me watch tonight? <laughs> I think it's very important um, to be consistent and um, to provide a lot of good content and to not uh, to not go halfway with anything, to to try to um, work the hardest that you're able to. So let's get right into it so chapter nine specifically of this work in this work it's gonna require a lot less explanation from me because saint thomas was doing what i'm trying to do here he was trying to this wasn't a work which he was sending over to muslim scholars or orthodox scholars or anything like that this was a work that he was giving to lay people in order to equip them to uh, engage in apologetics with their neighbors because at this time, he was living in Spain, and he would, and the lay people of that city were having a lot of discussions with those of differing creeds. I'm going to open my window because it's a little hot in here. They were having a lot of discussions with those of different creeds, so he wanted to write a work to equip lay people. So this is going to be a lot less explanation on my part, but there might be a few concepts that I need to explain. Okay, so I'm going to zoom it in a little bit more for you guys so you can see it real good this is actually the wrong chapter yeah sorry about that donate bitcoin thing in the corner it's so annoying it's like me when i put my patreon everywhere which is a reminder if you guys are appreciating what i'm doing please become a patron that really helps me out okay so let's begin. Chapter 9, how there is a special place where souls are purified before receiving beatitude. And receiving beatitude, he's specifically talking about the beatific vision. We must now consider the opinion of those who say there is no purgatory after death. Some hold this opinion by overreaction, as happens in many other questions. Trying to avoid one error, they fall into the contrary. Thus, Arius wanted to avoid the error of Sibelius, who merged the persons of the Holy Trinity, but he wound up dividing the divine essence. Likewise, Eutyches wanted to avoid the error of Nestorius, who divided the person of God and man in Christ, but went over to the contrary error of saying that he had a single divine and human nature. So some wishing to avoid the error of Origen, who said that the pains of hell would eventually purify all its occupants, assert that there is no purifying pain after death. So this is actually a very um, Numenite uh, concept, which is being brought forward here. This is very much in line with St. John Henry Newman's work on the uh, development of doctrine, that the church um, treads the middle ground between opposing errors. This is also a very Aristotelian concept, that there is a median virtue between, uh, two, between two extremes. So it's very important that uh, when we're getting into these apologetic encounters and trying to correct valid errors, that we're not reactionary about it, that we rationally think about a positive position which we hold rather than just denying the opposite. Like, for example, um, I see this a lot in um, online apologetics with uh, Protestants when um, they talk about the, the issue of faith and works. It's completely fine. I know I'm going to get flack for this. It's completely fine as a Protestant, I mean, as a Catholic, to say that 
Justification, in a sense, is by faith alone. St. Newman will talk about it as the internal instrument wherein we grasp onto the grace of God, being by faith alone. It's a completely fine way of speaking, and um, the fact that uh, merit is not strict merit in where we are working for salvation, those are very important concepts in Catholic theology, which are obscured when we fall into those opposite errors of just trying to own the Protestants. That's not what we're doing. We're not trying to own the Protestants by being reactionary. We're trying to defend the faith in which we hold. So it's very important, general, a very important general concept. So continuing, the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church treads carefully between contrary errors. It distinguishes the persons in the Trinity against Sibelius without leaning towards the error of Arius but professes only one essence of the persons. In the mystery of the Incarnation, it distinguishes the two natures against Eutyches, but does not join Nestorius in making two persons. Likewise, regarding the state of souls after death, it professes that those who leave this life without mortal sin and have the gift of love may undergo some purifying pain, but it does not agree with Origen in saying that all pain after death is purifying. Rather, it professes that those who die with mortal sin are tortured with the devil and his angels with eternal punishment. So getting into the concept of uh, purgatory, if you're not too familiar with it, I will explain how it's between these two opposing errors. So with purgatory in this life, there are two categories in which Catholic theology will speak of um, the punishments due to sin. So there are the eternal punishments due to the sin. And this is Better to speak as uh, guilt. So let's say I um, murder somebody. If I murder somebody and then repent of that sin, the eternal punishment of hellfire due to my sin is completely and utterly forgiven. But I may still have those temporal effects due to sin. I still have that disordering of the soul, which may not be completely healed by grace wherein I still am not perfect when it comes to, per se, considering my moral state. So at death, um, those who are in a state of grace may completely be forgiven of all of those eternal punishments. So they, they have no guilt left. Christ has forgiven all of their guilt. It has all been remitted and um, the tradition will talk about a negative imputation. So that's a way in which we can talk about an imputation where um, based completely and solely on the merits of Christ, our, the guilt due to our sin has been wiped away. Completely fine way of speaking. But on the other hand, there are still those um, temporal effects. And we all get this intuitively that we know when we die for the vast, 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 vast majority of people while they are in a state of grace and while their sins are completely remitted due to grace, there are still these um, sinful inclinations that they have. They're still attached to those sinful objects. There's still that longing for perfection that they have where they're not perfect yet. They're still bogged down by certain fleshly instincts, certain concupiscence, as uh, the tradition will call. Yet, there's good news for those who are stuck in that situation, that after death, before entering into the beatific vision, we can be completely cleansed 
from all those temporal effects due to our sins. And this is called purgatory. It's a cleansing, complete cleansing of those, um, that attachment which we have to uh, sin in this life. So it's not, although the tradition, we'll talk about punishing, um, it's, it ought not to, in our, in our common parlance today, be think, thought of as a punishment in that we still have guilt. It's more so a temporal effect where God is uh, chastening those who he loves and he's bringing us into complete conformity because there's no holy thing which would be brought before the eyes of God. There's no holy, unholy thing brought into the new Jerusalem. Therefore, we are not only um, cleansed wherein our guilt is forgiven, but we are completely purified and brought into that state of holiness where we may be before the Lord. So if that makes if that makes more reasonable sense, then you have been pre presented before with purgatory because it's a very misunderstood doctrine. And if you do understand it, you'll understand the absolute grace and the glorious nature of purgatory, that it's something amazing for the human race, not um, not a denigration of the atonement in any means at all. But it's actually even better news that the atonement does not only uh, remit our sins, but the atonement completely destroys any effect of sin in us, either in this life for some, but for most um, before, after this life, and then before beatitude in purgatory. Okay, so let us go on. So he's first going to oppose the error of origin that, that there are those who... Um, those who will escape hell, so to speak, that there are those who well, all everybody um, escapes hell and that hell is just of a transitory uh, cleansing nature. He's going to pose that error. And normally I would just skip this error, but uh, because this is actually relevant to unfortunately to universalism. Okay. So as for the truth of the matter, we must first of all say that those who die in mortal sin are immediately carried away to hellish punishment. This is clear from the gospel. Thus, Luke states the words of the Lord that the rich man died and was buried in hell. He looked up. He describes his own torture, for I'm in agony and these flames. Job also says of the wicked, they enjoy life and then go down suddenly to Sheol. See also Job 22:17. They say to God, go away from us. Not only are the wicked in hell for their own sins, but before the sufferings of Christ, even the just went down at death to the underworld, underworld for the sin of our first parent. Thus Jacob said, quote, I will go down to Sheol in mourning. Thus Christ himself at death went down to the underworld, as the creed says, and as the prophet David foretold, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, which Peter in Acts 2.25 applies to Christ. Christ, however, went to the underworld in a different way, not laden with sin, but alone, free among the dead. He descended to disarm principalities and powers, and to take captives, as Zechariah predicted. As for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I have released your prisoners from the pit in which there is no water. But, because God's acts of compassion are above all his works, we believe still more that those who die without stain receive immediately the reward due to them from eternity. So this is what I was talking about before, those case, cases of those 
who may be without sin, I mean, without stain. So those who have been so purified in this life that, um, that they immediately are received to the beatific vision without purgatory. So he's not denying the existence of those. This is proven by clear text with reference to the sufferings of the saints. The apostle says, we're well aware that when the tent that houses us on earth is folded up, there is a house for us from God, not made by human hands, but everlasting in the heavens. These words appear at first sight to indicate that as soon as the mortal body is dissolved, man is clothed with heavenly glory. But to make the meaning plainer, let us examine the following verses. Since he referenced to two things, the disillusion of our earthly dwelling and the gaining of a heavenly dwelling, he shows us how man's desire regards each with an explanation of each. So regarding the desire for a heavenly dwelling, he says that we groan because we are delayed from reaching our desire, and we yearn to be clothed over our heavenly dwelling. These words indicate that the heavenly dwelling he is take, talking about is not something separated from man, but something attached to him. For we do not say that a man puts on a house, but a garment. Rather, we say that someone dwells in a house. So when he combines the two concepts to be clothed over with our heavenly dwelling, he shows that what we first desire is something attached because it is put on and it is also containing and exceeding since it is dwelt in exactly what this object of desire is the following verses make clear because he did not simply say clothed but clothed over he explains this provided we are found clothed and not naked as if to say if the souls put on an eternal dwelling without taking off at the earthly dwelling the acquisition of that dwelling is being clothed over but because the earthly dwelling must be taking off in order to put on the heavenly dwelling, we cannot simply speak of being clothed over. Now notice, this is not a text commonly brought up uh, with discussions on purgatory. Because he speaks, sorry, he speaks of, um, of being clothed over by the heavenly dwelling and then also having beforehand clothed over with an earthly dwelling so there is of necessity this taking off of the earthly dwelling before there is the putting on of the heavenly dwelling and then with the uh with the the earthly dwelling being taken off he's going to from this um prove purgatory because that's basically what purgatory is is the taking off of our earthly dwelling that is the temporal effects due to sin and i'm going to there's a few things in the chat right now Okay. okay, I don't see any questions in the chat, so I'm going to continue. Therefore, someone could ask the apostle, why did you say yearning to be clothed over? He answers that by saying, while we are in our present tent, that is clothed with our present transitory dwelling, not having a permanent dwelling, we groan weighed down as by something happening against our desire. Since by our natural desire, we do not wish to be stripped naked from our earthly tent, but to be clothed over with a heavenly tent, so that what is mortal may be absorbed by life. That is, that we may go into immortal life without tasting death. Someone could ask again the apostle why, as it seems reasonable, 
should we want not to be stripped of our earthly dwelling, which is natural to us in order to put on our heavenly dwelling? He answers, God has designed us for this, that is to desire heavenly things. How God does this, he asks, he has given us the spirit as a pledge. For the Holy Spirit, whom we receive from God, makes us certain and eager to gain our heavenly dwelling, like claiming something owed to us because of the pledge we hold. Because of this certainty, we are lift up to desire a heavenly dwelling. So we have two kinds of desire. The first is natural, which is not to abandon our earthly dwelling. And the second is from grace, which is to gain a heavenly dwelling. But both desires cannot be fulfilled since we cannot reach our heavenly dwelling without leaving our earthly one. So with a firm trust and boldness, we preserve, we prefer the desire that comes from grace to our natural desire and wish to leave our earthly dwelling and go to our heavenly one. That is what he adds. Therefore, we continue to be confident. We know that while we dwell in the body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. I repeat, we are of full confidence and would much rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It is now clear that the apostle meant the corruptible body by the term the tent that houses us on earth. This body is like a garment to the soul. It is also clear that what he meant by a house not made by human hands, but everlasting in the heavens, is God himself, whom men put on or dwell in, when they are present to him face to face, that is, seeing him as he is. But they are on the road, away from him, when they hold by faith what they do not yet see. Therefore the saints desire to travel away from the body, that their souls may be separated from their bodies by death, so that having left the body, they may be present to the Lord. And this is this, this wall of text I just read to you. I'm going to continue after this brief comment. This is something which I think can be in the apologetic encounter with Protestants uh, focused on right here. Is There is this very clear desire that we have as Christians in holding that article of the faith that we will be God. That we be stripped in order to... Um, attain the heavenly dwelling, that we be stripped of this current earthly dwelling. And may ask, how does this happen? Because obviously, um, sin is not something material or substantial, but is the corruption of our faculties. So how, again, is our soul going to be purified that we may put on the heavenly dwelling? How is that earthly dwelling going to be cast from our soul? And we can play on that point and point them to uh, consistency that we must affirm and agree that there is some uh, space, not speaking in locution, but in uh, temporal in time, that there must be at least this logical uh, point between death, which is, um, and then between um, putting on that heavenly dwelling of this taking off of the earthly dwelling, which is those temporal effects due to sin. So it is therefore clear that the souls of the saints separated from the body have reached their heavenly dwelling. Therefore, the glory of holy souls, which consists in the vision of God, is not deferred to the day of judgment when bodies are raised. This is also clear from what the apostle says to the Philippians. I long to be freed from this life and to be with Christ. This desire would be frustrated if, after the body was dissolved, he was not with Christ, who is in heaven. The Lord also clearly said to the penitent thief on the cross, 
Today you will be with me in paradise, meaning by paradise the enjoyment of glory. So it is not to be believed that Christ defers the reward of his faithful, as far as the glory of their souls is concerned, until the resurrection of the body. The words of the Lord, in my Father's house there are many places to live in, refers to different degrees of rewards given to the saints in heavenly happiness, not outside the heavenly home, but in it. From this, it also follows that there is a place for purifying souls after death. Many passages of scripture clearly say that no one can enter heavenly glory with any stain. So this is going to be absolutely vital to talking about purgatory right here. So the fact that scripture teaches that we cannot have this beatific vision, we cannot have this fullness of heavenly glory, we cannot be in the presence of God with any stain of sin. And the very apparent fact that in life, in this life, at death, we do have a stain of sin. So there must be some sort of account for how we go from having a stain of sin, which is in the soul. It's not just, okay, we lose our bodies, therefore our, we're, we're fine. No, that can't be because, um, because uh, the stains of sin aren't material, but they're going to be found in our intellectual and sensitive uh, faculties too. So we have to account for how this cleansing happens and whatever account that's going to be given is going to be some species under the general category or genus of purgatory. So there's going to be some sort of purgation, which happens. And the magisterium gives us great, um, gives us a bit of a breadth when it comes to how exactly we define, although there's certain essential points in it. And I can get into that in a later video. But I think that's important that in order for this discussion to happen, we have to agree on this based, based, <laughs> this base premise that um, that no one can enter heavenly glory without any stain. We have a stain of sin when we die. Therefore, we must be cleansed from this stain, no matter how we're going to talk about the instrumentality of this purgation. So speaking about participation in divine wisdom, so he's going to go to prove this from scripture. Wisdom 725 says, nothing impure can find its way into her, but heavenly happiness consists in the perfect participation in wisdom, by which we see God face to face, face to face. Therefore, those who are brought into this must be completely without stain. This is also supposed in Isaiah 35, 8. It will be called the sacred way. The unclean will not be allowed to use it. And in Revelation 21, 7, nothing unclean may come into it. Some people, so then he's going to go to the minor premise right here. The obvious fact that a lot of people when they die are with stain of sin. But so, so then there's, which are outside of that category of those with, uh, with mortal sin, whereby they receive eternal punishment for some people at the hour of death happen to have some stains of sin, which do not merit the eternal damnation of hell, such as venial sins, like idle words, etc. So it's not even really important here to discuss uh, venial sins with Protestants, although that's a different conversation. But he's speaking to a Catholic audience, so he can assume um, venial sins uh, with discussions with the Orthodox. But specifically applied to Protestants, we just have to um, agree upon this common idea that there's a distinction between eternal punishments due to sin and then temporal effects due to sin. That's really all we need to um, 
all we need to assume. We don't necessarily need to assume this distinction between mortal and venial sins. Those who die with such stains cannot go straight to heavenly happiness, although they would if they did not have these stains, as we have seen. Therefore, after death, they at least suffer a delay in entering glory. There is no reason why our objector should concede that souls after death suffer this penalty rather than any other, especially since the lack of the vision of God and separation from him is a greater pain, even for those in hell, than the punishment of fire which they suffer there. Therefore, the souls of those who die with venial sins undergo a purifying fire. So again, he's gonna, he draws the conclusion here. So again, premise one, um, in order to be in the presence of God, you have to be cleansed from all. You, you cannot have the stain of sin. Premise two, there's those who um, have the stain of sin. Therefore, the best accounting for this, for these two pieces of scriptural data right there, is the conclusion that there must be some sort of purifying, some genus of purgation that there that there is. So then he's going to bring up a objection. If someone says that these venial sins will wait to be purified by the fire that will burn up the world before the coming of the judge, this cannot hold. It has been shown above that the souls of the saints, which have no stain, gain heavenly happiness as soon as they die. And at the same time, souls of venial sins cannot enter glory. In that case, their entrance into glory would be deferred because of venial sins until day, the day of judgment, which is most improbable, since this would be too great a penalty for light sins. Another reason for purgatory is that some people did not finish making due penance for the mortal sins they repented of before death, and it would not befit God's justice to let them off. Otherwise, those who die suddenly would be in a better position than those who spend a long time in this life doing penance. Therefore, they suffer something after death. This cannot be in hell where people are punished for mortal sins, since the mortal sins of these people have been forgiven by their repentance. Nor would it be fitting as a penalty to defer the glory due to them until the day of judgment. Therefore, there should be some temporary purifying punishment after this life before the day of judgment. And these two arguments aren't going to be as applicable against, against Protestants, although they, they would follow for the Orthodox so these these two aren't really um, too applicable to that case. Therefore, I won't really really cover them. But basically, um, the the first argument is that uh, with the deferral of the beatific vision, um, it would be too heavy of a punishment for them to wait until uh, the day of judgment to be cleansed. Which that's uh, I don't think anybody would really today that you meet would say that. Uh, Venial sins are going to be purified at the coming of the judge. That's not really uh, applicable to many situations we're in. But this one, this one is pretty applicable in at least a Catholic context to understanding the logic behind the 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 um, doctrine of purgatory. Then also can be used against the Orthodox that it would be um, unjust for uh, God to not allow the completion of of one's penance. So, okay. Church rites established by the apostles agree with this. For the whole church prays for the faithful departed. So this is going to be right here an argument from liturgical practice. Very, very important. Because although Protestants deny that we pray for pray for the dead, it's still a, a um, fact. It's This isn't really disputed. 
that throughout the history of the church, we have prayed for the faithful departed. It is clear that it does not pray for those who are in hell, where there is no redemption, nor for those who have reached heavenly glory. Because if you pray, you can't really pray for those in hell because they're already in hell. Why in the world would you be praying for those in hell? So these prayers of the church for the faithful departed can't be in reference to those who are in hell. And it's also superfluous to pray for those who are in heavenly glory. Because if you're praying for those in heavenly glory, why why pray for them? What are you, what are you praying for exactly? They have the completeness of, of joy. Their entire uh, person has been uh, actualized to their final end. So what are you praying for for those in heaven? So it from the practice of the church for praying for the faithful departed, it assumes a sort of purgation which happens after this life. It remains, therefore, that there are some temporal purifying pains after this life, for whose remission the church prays. Thus, even the apostle says, each person's handiwork will be shown for what it is. The day which dawns in fire will make it clear, and the fire itself will test the quality of each person's work. The one whose work stands up to it will be given his wages. The one whose work is burnt down will suffer the loss of it, though he himself will be saved, but only as one fleeing through fire. This cannot be understood of the fires of hell, because those who suffer that fire are not saved. Therefore, it must be understood of a purifying fire. And this verse is, is quoted as no, ad nauseum in the, uh, in the purgatory debates between Protestants and Catholics. I don't really even need to Go over it. I'll just let it let it stand. It may be said that this should be understood of the fire that will precede the coming of the judge. And interestingly enough, that's going to be the uh, the Protestant response to this. Especially since the passage says the day will make it clear. Well, the day of the Lord is understood as the day of his last coming for the universal judgment of the whole world. As the apostle says in 1 Thessalonians, the day of the Lord is going to be come like a thief in the night. In reply, we must point out that as the day of judgment is called the day of the Lord, because it is the day of his coming for the universal judgment of the whole world, so the day of each person's death can also be called the day of the Lord, because then Christ comes to each person to reward or condemn him. So, again, he's arguing that... Um, that this section that the day will make it clear does not necessarily refer to the to the final judgment, but it is used in scripture to refer to the particular judgment. With reference to the rewarding of the good, Christ said to his disciples, after I've gone and prepared you a place, I shall return to take you to myself. With reference to the damnation of the evil, it is said in Revelation 2.5, repent and, believe, and behave as you did at first. Or else, if you will not repent, I shall come to you and take your lampstand from its place. Therefore, the day of the Lord on which the universal judgment takes place will be revealed in the fire which will precede the coming of the judge, when the reprobate will be pulled to judgment and the just who are left alive will be purified. But the day of the Lord on which he will judge each person at, each person at his death will be revealed by a fire that will purify the good and condemn the wicked. Therefore, it is clear that there is a purgatory after death. Okay, now if you guys want to send any questions in the chat, I can answer them. But if not, then I will go. It is getting kind of late.
Okay. I don't see any questions, so I'll let you guys go. Um, remember, in the description of this video, there should be a link to my Discord. That's very important for you guys. Um, also, patreon.com slash militantomist. If you would please become a patron, that really helps me out a lot and will make me be able to make even more content of, uh, of any kind that you have. So thank you guys all. Um, I appreciate every single one of you and God bless. Lord.